We are finishing up the series today, Revelation 3, verses 14 through 22. And I just want to start by saying on a personal level how much, and I should say this every Sunday, I'm going to say it this Sunday, how much I love being pastor of this church. Um, how honored I am to be in this position. Uh, I know that there's a lot of pastors who would love to trade places with me. They haven't told me that, but I can see it in their eyes, you know? Um, and, and I'll tell you some things. There are a lot of folks in this service, especially, who are new to the church. So I'm going to tell you a little bit of the history of this congregation and the future and the present. And then we're going to get into what uh, Jesus says to a, a church that may or may not have some things in common with us. So uh, this church has, is 131 years old. 131 years ago, this was a very, very small sawmill town in East Texas, and a group of people decided, hey, there needs to be a Baptist church here, and so they planted one right smack in the middle of the town, and the church grew with the town. So uh, the, church, the, the town of Conroe changed when oil hit. When, when oil came to Conroe, it changed the, the landscape of this city. And then several decades later, when the, when the lake came in, that changed the city again. Some of you have been here long enough to remember some of those days. Um, no, we don't, oddly enough, we don't have any charter members of this church. You know, there's no 138-year-old people who are... Anyway, um, so... The, this church grew with the city, and, and a lot of great people have led this church. Uh, if you go out that door at the end of the service and you turn right, you'll see a sign that says Harrington Hall. You may wonder about that. I, I'm not really big on naming things after people in a church, but I think that was the right move because uh, Cliff and Carolyn Harrington came to this church in the middle 60s and stayed 18 years with him as senior pastor. And then God moved them somewhere else. But when he retired, they came back here and invested themselves again in this church. When I came along in 2016, he was still the, the uh, pastor emeritus and so I got to know him for a couple of years before the Lord called both of them home and got to see just what a, what a, per, what a gracious and humble and, and full of integrity, full of love for the Lord and for you uh, kind of people they were. And what I've observed is that when two people who are as much like Jesus as Cliff and Carolyn Harrington were, when they invest themselves in a church for that long, it can't help but shape the kind of people who, who spend time in that church and shape the character of that congregation. And in many ways, I'm still living in the wake of that and, and walking in the legacy of that. And some of you know that. Some of you experienced that. You knew that, that couple. After Cliff was the pastor here, Marshall Edwards came along. And from all I've told, I've not met Marshall, but he, he was apparently a very, very gifted preacher. Uh, the staff there had a lot of very talented people. And so the church grew numerically uh, at a great rate. Um, and then when you, when you walk out into the atrium, just look around and realize that until about 20 years ago, that was Main Street Conroe. It, it just passed right in front of those steps that you walk out of. Um, and, and so 20 years ago, a group of people in this church had the vision to build that atrium and to fund it. I don't know how they did it. I'm amazed. I'm impressed. I am not a, a facilities guy as a pastor. That's one of my failings. So I thank God every time I'm there that there is a place for the people of God to gather before and after worship. And I think what happens out there is almost equally as important as what happens in here as the people of God are just standing and fellowshipping and enjoying one another. Uh, Rusty Walton was the pastor here then. He was another guy who was here a long time, invested himself in the community, still lives here, is a friend to me and an encourager to me and to many of you. So this church has been blessed in many ways. Now, it hasn't always been good times. That Some of you know, some of you don't. You're about to find out that over the past 40 years, two different senior pastors have had to step down because of moral failure. 
And that's the kind of thing that can be devastating to a church. And it would be here if not for the fact that there are men and women in this church who, who stepped up and said, you know, the pastor is not the church. We love the pastor. We pray for him. We support him. But he's just a man. The church is the people of God, called by God. Jesus is the head. So let's, let's be the church. And a lot of the people who made this church strong through, tough, through difficult times are still here, and we're blessed to have them. And let's never, ever forget that. I mean, I say that, I've said that in all three services today, but especially in this service where the, the average age of this service is young, remember the, the legacy we walk in and how many godly people there are who made this church what they are, what it is, and do not take them for granted. Enjoy every bit of the opportunity you have to be with them. This church has planted churches in Montgomery County that are strong today. It sent out uh, no telling how many missionaries and, and ministers, um, and then not to mention the countless multitude of people who've come to Christ through the ministry of this church. So great legacy and great present. I love being pastor of this church, not just because of the history or because of the, the size of the facilities and all that. You know, what matters most to me, I think, what makes this such an enjoyable job for me is I like the people. You know, I love you because God tells me I have to, but I actually like you. And so I'm glad to be able to say that. I, I really am because there are other pastors who don't really like their church and the, they don't like them either. So, you know, it, it's good to be in a place where there's love, where there's a lot of people who are, who are serious about following Christ and serious about loving each other. I love what's going on here. I love the staff of this church. I inherited most of them, but the ones who I was able to bring in, it's, it's, been, it's been great to watch as a group of people who love God and are good at what they do uh, work together as a team. Because you would think that would be the case, right? That, that people who are called to ministry would work together as, and, and be Christ-like. But I've seen that doesn't always happen. And it's happening here, and I'm grateful for it. So this church has a wonderful present, and I think it's got a great future. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or the next day, but what I see is this city is growing rapidly. This county's growing rapidly. If the people who founded Conroe could see it, they would think this, this can't be. There's no way this little bitty town became this. But people are moving here by the, by the thousands, and God is bringing a significant number of them into our church. And I know it's God doing it because I've pastored for a long time, and I've never pastored a church that grew like this church is growing right now. We're just seeing lots of people join, and that's exciting. God's choosing to do that, but that's why we have three services. I don't know if y'all know this, probably most of you don't, but before the pandemic started, I mean like right before, we had had a series of meetings with, group of, with several leaders in our church and had made the decision we were going to go to three services because the two services we had were full, were getting full. And we said, hey, God's bringing people to us. We've got to make room for those people. That's only responsible. Uh, so when the pandemic hit, then we did that. We went to three services for the purpose of, uh, of, of, of social distancing. I hate that term. I hadn't used it in a long time. I'm not going to use it again in a long time. Uh, but that's why we did it. And then we said, hey, you know, we're going to get back. And, and we have. We're now to the level of attendance we were in early 2020. And so we're going to continue to have three services. I know that's a sacrifice for a lot of people in this church, least of all me, because all it means for me is I get to do what I love three times a day instead of two. But a lot of people are making sacrifices and doing more to make room for the people God is bringing us. 
We need to not just make room for them, we need to disciple them. We need to make sure that they're growing in Christ. So if you're a life group leader, or if you're a deacon, or if you're in any kind of position of leadership in this church, you have an important job to do, and thank you for doing it. We need to reach the people who haven't been reached. And I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but if you're my age or younger or older, you're used to this idea that, well, you know, on Sundays, lost people come to church looking for Jesus and the pastor's got to preach the gospel. And if he does, they get saved. And that's how, that's how people meet Christ. That's not happening anymore. Lost people don't just wander into churches. That, that doesn't even enter their minds. So we have to go to them. And they won't answer the door if we go cold call knocking anymore. So what we have to do, and I think this is good, is we have to actually take time to love them. That's how people are going to be reached in our current age. They've got to know that we love them, that, we're, that they're not some evangelism project for us, not some way to make our church bigger. They've got to actually know, oh, this person's my coworker, this person's my neighbor, this person uh, comes to my barber shop and I cut their hair, this person comes to the doctor's office where I you know, take their blood so I can get it checked. Uh, this person is someone I know that loves me in a different way and that's attractive and I want to know what's up with them. So that's why as a vision, as a church, our vision is to equip you to make the most of all those relationships that God has placed into your life so that 10,000 times between now and 2030, we want members of this church to have what we call a transforming relationship with someone else, which simply means I'm going to go further than just knowing this person. I'm going to invest in them in a way that is significant, in a way that is Christ-centered, that I hope will lead them closer to Christ, maybe even to salvation. And that is our hope. That is our goal as a church. Now, all of that is me. That's, that's my, this, that's, you know, little 10 minute state of the church from, from your pastor. And it's, I hope it's worth something, but you know what it's not? It's not worth what Jesus thinks of this church. Now, I don't know what Jesus thinks of this church. I, I have some ideas, but he's not here speaking with his own mouth. So I don't know. What I do know is this last letter, in the book of, in, in Revelation 3, is to me the most relevant of all the seven letters when it comes to the American church. And so I think for as many good things that are going on in First Baptist Conroe, we, it behooves us to measure ourselves against what Jesus says to that church 2,000 years ago. Because we're an American church too. And we have some of the failings of the American church today. So let's test ourselves by what Jesus says to them. This is going to be a challenging message, so buckle up, gird up your loins, verse 14, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you were lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, these are familiar words, and we're not done. There's, there's a couple more passages I'm going to read in this section, but there are a couple of things that are often misunderstood about this letter, and one is verse 15, when he says, I wish you were either cold or hot. And a lot of folks, a lot of Christians read that to say, well, I wish you would either just, just reject me entirely or, or be all the way on fire for me, but, but don't be mediocre. That's the worst thing of all. As if, as if God would rather us be atheists than mediocre Christians. And there's nothing in the scriptures that indicate that that's true at all. That doesn't even make sense. And in fact, when you look at the geography of Laodicea, 
So it's in, or it was, it no longer exists. It was in this place called the Lycus Valley in modern day Turkey. And there were a couple of cities nearby. One was called Hierapolis, where they had these famous hot springs and you could go and, and take baths in those hot springs and supposedly get healed. And nearby, only six miles away, was the town of Colossae. If that sounds familiar, it's because the letter Colossians in the New Testament was written to that church. Six miles away was Colossae. They had a cold spring that bubbled up year-round, so access to cold water year-round. Laodicea didn't have either of those things. It was on the Lycus River, so they had a water source, but it wasn't a very good water source, and it would dry up during the summer, and during the summers, they'd have to import their water through a six-mile-long viaduct from Colossae. By the time it got to their city, it was lukewarm and nasty and foul, and people would actually get sick from drinking it. So when Jesus says this, He's literally saying, you people make me sick. You're like Laodicea water. You turn my stomach. Can you imagine if Jesus came and preached a sermon in First Baptist Conroe, and the first thing he said was, you people make me want to puke. And that is what Jesus is saying to that church. But why? Well, Laodicea was a very wealthy city. Not that there's anything inherently wrong with, with possessing wealth, but the Laodiceans were proud of their prosperity. Does that sound familiar to you? It does to me. They, they had banks full of gold because Laodicea was a center for banking in the New Testament world. They also were famous for producing this black clothing that came from the black sheep, the, the glossy black sheep that, that inhabited the, the Lycus Valley. And they also had a medical school that produced this, this substance called Phrygian powder uh, that was supposedly good for, for eye ailments. And so they were proud of all these things. All these things brought them income. In fact, in 60 AD, 40 years before, 40 or so years before this letter was written, the city of Laodicea was absolutely leveled by an earthquake. And they sent messengers to Rome saying, I know, I know you want to rebuild the city. Don't worry about it. We've got enough money. We'll rebuild it ourselves. So they were wealthy and proud. And here's what Jesus says to them. Verse 17, for you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Jesus is indicting everything they're proud of. Your gold doesn't mean you have spiritual wealth. You're spiritually poor. Your beautiful garments that bring in all that income, they hide the fact that that you're exposed before me. Your sin is exposed before me. You need to buy white garments from me the garments of righteousness. And, and you think you have this, this vision because you, you live in a city that produces this eye, eye salve, but what you really need is spiritual vision, the ability to see the way I see. Jesus closes it out this way, verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the second part of this letter that's often misinterpreted is verse 20. 
Last summer, I preached on it in our series on, on, on passages that are often taken out of context. I, I think verse 20 is one of the most taken out of context in text verses in the New Testament. And, and I know that because growing up as I did in an evangelical background, I was often told, hey, you know, if you're a sinner, if you're lost, Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart. It says so in Revelation 3.20. Yeah, it says that, but it's not talking to lost people. You see this, don't you? He's talking to a church full of people who claim to be saved. Imagine Jesus banging on the doors of our church saying, hey, I hear the songs. They're about me. I hear the sermon. It's about me. Sounds good. I wish you would have invited me to the party. What an indictment of a church that the Lord we claim to worship isn't even invited in. So this isn't a verse about evangelism. It's a verse about a church getting right with God. Would Jesus say that about us? That's what we have to ask ourselves. I don't know the answer to that question. Because see, the, the truth is, for all the stuff I said earlier about what a great church this is, and I met every word of it, I have a nagging fear. I have a fear that I wouldn't say keeps me up at night, but it sure bothers me on a regular basis. And that is, I know that I'm going to stand before the Lord someday in judgment. All of us are. But, but James tells us that those who want to be teachers of the word, we face a, a doubly strict judgment. And so I know I'm going to have to give an accounting for what I did with the opportunities God gave me. And my soul's not on the line. Jesus has died to save that. I know I'm, I'm saved. I just, I don't want to stand before God someday and say, okay, God, you gave me this great church full of great people with all these resources in a city full of lost people. And the whole time I was there, all I did was try my best to keep people happy so they wouldn't fire me. You know, I, I just liked being there, and so we just sort of went through the motions and, and did the old things and, and never really reached our city. I, I have this fear. And I know Jesus is still going to love me, but I don't want to stand before him and say that I didn't do and we didn't do all we were called to do. I, I don't want to stand there knowing that there were people in my congregation who might have been able to pretend to be believers because they'd been raised right and they'd learned the Christianese, but they've never really accepted Christ as their Savior. And I didn't tell them enough of the truth for them to repent and get right. I, I don't want to get there and find out that the people of this church were counting on me to challenge them and to lead them and, and, and to be challenged to do more than just keep the old thing going, but really to go out and do what's necessary to reach the community for Christ. And I didn't do it. That's my fear. That's what I worry about. So what are we going to do? What does the Lord say to do? How do we know what Jesus would say to us? There are three questions I think we need to ask ourselves. Me, you, all of us. Question number one, what is my treasure? What is my treasure? By the way, let me go back. I, I need to say this. I meant to and I, I skipped it. Why do I worry about this? Not just because I'm trying to be dramatic. Okay, get this. We live within a few miles of half a million people. That's reality. And that number is only going up. Based on what I see as I drive through the streets and the highways, a lot of our neighbors don't know Jesus. There's a lot of broken people around us. When you look at the New Testament, what did broken people feel when they saw Jesus? They were drawn to him. It was us buttoned down religious types who 
didn't want anything to do with Jesus, but the people whose lives were in a shambles, they couldn't get enough of him. So my question is, if all of that is true, and it is, why aren't we seeing more lost people get saved? Why aren't we seeing this constant drumbeat of transformation of lives every single day, every single day, every single week, every single Sunday, hearing stories of, of transformation and, and lives being turned around and people getting baptized in his name. Why is, I mean, it's happening and I'm thankful for the, the souls that are being saved, but why isn't it happening more? Don't you think it should be? Let that sit with you for a while. If that doesn't hurt you, if that doesn't make you sad, if that doesn't break your heart a little, then it should. It should. Because we know what God's heart is for the lost, and we know what kinds of resources we've been given, and the lost are all around us, so why isn't it happening? So here, we go with those three questions again. Number one, what is my treasure? What is my treasure comes down to what is that which I truly worship? What means most to me? See, as a congregation, if Jesus isn't the most important thing to us, no wonder we're not reaching people like we should. So what, here's, here's different, there's different ways of measuring what your true treasure is, and, and part of it is, what do I put my hope in? If we as a people, we're, we're interested in achieving things and accomplishing things and, and climbing up the ladder, then your career is your true treasure. If on the other hand, it's all about, well, if I can only buy this, if I can only achieve that, if I can only have this experience and, and go to this place, then your wealth is your true treasure. Or another way to ask the question is, well, what am I most afraid of? Because let's face it, we all have fears, but the things that scare us the most are the things that we think are threatening that which we treasure the most. So if your greatest fear is that uh, you're going to be embarrassed, that you're going to be laughed at, that you're going to be made fun of, then it's your reputation that you treasure the most. If, on the other hand, your greatest fear is, oh no, what if I get hurt and I can't do the things I want to do? Or what if, what if I get too old to do the things that I'm good at? Or what if my appearance changes? Well, then it's all about vitality and youth and appearance for you. That's what you truly treasure. And, and the, there's a still another way to ask the question, and that is what makes me angry? Anger is a great barometer for idolatry because we get angriest when someone threatens our idols. It just, it's just true. So if, if the things that really make you angry are when people inconvenience you and disturb your right as you see it to do what you want, then comfort and security, that's your true treasure. On the other hand, if you get angriest when you hear people espousing views you disagree with, especially if they're espoused in a way that's eloquent, then your highest value, your greatest treasure is, I like to be right. I like to have the last word. See, there's a lot of very, very good things that can become ultimate things in our hearts, that can become idols. And I don't believe there's ever going to be real revival in this church or any church until the people of God actually get honest about their idols and say, this is not a bad thing, but it's too important in my life and I need to get it right before God. So pray with me, would you? On a regular basis that God would help us cast our idols aside and make him our true treasure and not just sing about him on Sundays, but live it. So there's a second question. What is my righteousness? What is my righteousness? Jesus condemns the people of Laodicea for being so proud of their outward garments when the truth was they were clothed in self-made righteousness. 
Remember the story of the emperor's new clothes? I learned that when I was a little boy. And it's appropriate when you read the story that a little boy in the story is the hero. Because here's the thing about kids. I don't know if you've noticed this or not. Kids typically have no filter. And so they're likely to say what they're thinking. And oftentimes they say truth that no one else wants to hear. Like this time, uh, my nephew, Brayden, who's now a teenager, but when he was a little boy, seven or eight years old, totally unfiltered kid, I I went to him and I said, hey, Brayden, I was giving him a hard time. Hey, I always come visit you. How come you never come visit me? I mean, you're only a couple hours away from me. You never come see me. Here I am, I'm pastor of a church. You've never even heard me preach. And without batting an eye, he said, why would I want to hear you preach? It's a very good question. You know, somebody had to say it, right? And so I I didn't invite him to come visit me anymore. So um, (laughs) in the story, this this emperor, who of course is full of himself, is lofty and and pompous. This tailor comes to him and says, I'm I'm offering you the chance of a lifetime to have a, a garment made of invisible thread. No one else on earth has it. You'll be the only one with one. And of course, that feeds the emperor's ego. He says, absolutely. He pays uh, an exorbitant price to this man who, who, of course, gets away with nothing because the next thing you see is the emperor of the, of the nation strutting through the streets in his fruit of the looms which is his invisible garment, right? And the people of the, of the city are too timid to tell him the truth, but this little boy steps up and says, hey, he's not wearing any clothes. And that's what Jesus is saying here this morning. Because let's face it, I'm glad, listen, hear me say this, I am glad to go to church with a lot of very nice people. That is better than the alternative. The problem with nice people is sometimes truth needs to be said that doesn't get said. So Jesus has to be the truth teller here. And he has to say to the people of Laodicea, and maybe to you and me, stop strutting around in your own righteousness. Nobody wants to see that. You're making fools of yourself and you're disgracing me. What does this mean for us? It means we need to constantly come before the Lord. You got saved. If you're saved, you got saved because you came to Jesus and you said, your death is the only thing that can rescue me from my sin and my, my debt of sin before God. Thank you for dying for me, Jesus. I received that, that salvation and you were made right before God. If that's your testimony, hallelujah. But if you continue to walk in your own righteousness, even after having made that decision, you're making, an, you're making a fool of yourself. You're, you're disgracing God. And we as a congregation, if we're not constantly repentant, Lord, show me where I've failed you. Lord, forgive me for my sins and name them specifically. Lord, clothe me today in your righteousness. Today, I want people to look at me but see you. That's where we need to be. What is your righteousness? Is it the good deeds you can do? Is it your own self-centered comparison to people you think are worse than you? Or is it every day in humility saying, Lord, I need your righteousness or I've gotten out of my own? And then there's a third question we need to wrestle with, and that is, what is my vision? Where is, my, where is the source of my vision? We just naturally, just as human beings, we see through eyes of selfishness. People of Laodicea were that way. They saw others as sinful, but not themselves. Are we the same way? Do we hate the sins of others and excuse our own? We, we think about the people around you. I spoke a little earlier about, about transforming relationships and investing in others. And, and we all have our excuses why we don't do that. Oh my gosh, do you know how busy I am? Yeah, I, I actually do. 
I actually do. And you and I have the same 24 hours as people who are changing the world. What's our excuse? Well, you know, I'm just, I'm not eloquent. I'm not educated. I'm, I, I'm good at this, but I, I didn't have a seminary education. The 12 disciples didn't have a seminary education. Mary Magdalene didn't have a seminary education. All they did was told what they saw. All they did was love their neighbor as themselves. Well, I, I'm, not an, I'm not an extrovert. I'm, I'm more quiet. Well, thank God for that. I mean, <laughs> we had a church full of nothing but extroverts. Somebody would have to say, hey, just shut up for a while. It's good to have some people who are quiet. It's good to have some people who, who don't need constant stimulation. But you still have people in your life who need what you have. And God has uniquely created you to invest in them. There are, no, there are no hindrances except you just deciding, okay, Lord, I want you to teach me to see the world through your eyes. How often do you pray that way? Pray, pray that we as a congregation would see our community through the eyes of God. The worst thing we can do, other than just outright rejecting the truth and preaching false doctrine, the worst thing I think we could do is if we got, got this spiritual vision that says we're the righteous few, and we're going to hold on to what we have while all the world goes to hell around us. We're going to hold on to what we have and protect our own. That is the worst thing we can do. Instead of saying, man, those are people God loves. I want to see them through his eyes. I want, to, I want my heart to break for them like his heart breaks for them. I, I want to enjoy them and see the good in them the way he does and, and, and rejoice every time we see one of them come and come to know Christ. Y'all, I hope you understand I am preaching to myself here. But we as, the, we as God's people need His vision, and that's what revival looks like. So let me just close with this. I, there, I don't often you know, make a big point of quoting from PG-13 movies, but here you go. Um, so uh, I know it was 18 and a half or so years ago because Carrie was pregnant with Will, and he's 18 now. Uh, we went to see a movie called Bruce Almighty. And I remember that she was pregnant with Will because there was a scene in that movie where my wife laughed so hard, I thought that the baby was going to be born early. And, and I, you know, don't judge my wife. She's godlier than you, I promise. Um, but, uh, you know, obviously not a Christian movie, but sneaky profound. There's some parts of it that... I, I don't know if it was meant to be this way, but God used it, okay? So, so there's a scene early in the movie, and if you haven't seen it, miserable guy, God's trying to get in touch with him, wants to meet with him. God, of course, played by, uh, you know, uh, Morgan Freeman, who else? Um, and, and so God's trying to get in touch with Bruce. Bruce is not listening. He starts to page him. Okay, um, Generation Z, there were these things called pagers, before there were cell phones, and it was this little, little thing you wore on your belt or in your pocket, and if someone tried to get in touch with you, they would call this number, and it would beep. It would physically beep or buzz, and you would look at it, and it would say, a phone number for you to call. So Bruce's pager is binging constantly, and it's the same number, and he's not paying attention. It's God trying to get, in hold, get a hold of him, but he's not paying attention. Finally, he looks at the number again, and he says, don't know you, wouldn't call you if I did, and flings it out the window. And that is a picture of our world today. As God is trying his best to get in touch with humanity, and we won't listen. Don't know you. Wouldn't call you if I did. Let that not be said of us. As we 
proclaim the name of Jesus, let us make sure that we've invited him to be here and be king of this church. Let us make sure that, that he is the one we treasure, that he is the one we're worshiping, not just in name, but in reality, that whatever he says we do, let him be our true righteousness as we, look, as we walk in humility day by day. Let him be the source of our vision as he is training us to see people through his eyes.